This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I have entitled the study of these verses, Temporary Responsibilities. There's something about us as human beings that enables us to think a little bit more benignly toward a set of assignments if we understand that they are temporary. It's not going to be what we do forever. Oftentimes in life, we are faced with arduous challenges, but we are able to face them and we are encouraged to complete them because we realize that they are not permanent. They're temporary. Well, that's what the scripture is reminding us today about a set of moral choices that we need to make on a daily and even moment by moment basis as we live our lives here on earth. And that's the key phrase, our lives here on earth, or our lives in the flesh, in the bodies that we inherited from our parents, Adam and Eve. Now, we have an example here about how that can be done. And then we also have a resource in enabling us to do it in the life and work of Jesus Christ himself. Now, in previous chapters, Peter has talked about the fact that There's a certain way in which we are to live because we are now believers in him. The Holy Spirit will enable us to live that way because Christ lived that way and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And now the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is available to us to enable us to live this new life. We have a new spiritual nature within us. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it begins this way, therefore. Now, whenever we see the word therefore, as I have brought up ad nauseum, we need to say, what's it there for? It is there because we need to remember what he has previously taught us. And what he's previously taught us are the things that I just reviewed. Jesus has lived the perfect life for us. He's died on a cross. He's resurrected from the dead. And he's ascended to the Father. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all who believe him. Therefore, Because that's true. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Because Jesus, in his earthly life, which was roughly 33 some odd years, suffered in the flesh. He was rejected. He was put down, yet he didn't revile men or any of that sort of thing. He always reacted the way God the Father wanted him to. He never sinned once in thought, word, and deed. And not only was did he suffer, not only did he get rejected as Messiah, he was unjustly condemned to die on a cross for something he did not do. He did not commit the crime that he was accused of. And so Christ died on the cross for our sins. And because Christ suffered in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Jesus only had to put up with this in this life. And the same thing is true of us. We only have to put up with this in this life. And so we arm ourselves. And that means it's a word that's used only here. It's a verb that's used only here, which means to arm ourselves for spiritual warfare. And we do this mentally. My struggle is going to be inside my own mind. My struggle is going to be inside my own spirit. So just as Jesus armed himself by prayer and also by remembering the word of God, we also arm ourselves that way and we rely upon him to fulfill in us what he also completed while he was here on earth. 
And when I've suffered in this, in the flesh, I've suffered in a particular struggle, then at that point I have ceased from sin. It doesn't mean I become sinlessly perfect. It means I have achieved a level of victory over it. And so Christ achieved victory over all sin by living a perfect life, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And he can now impute that victory to us as we trust in him. And so we can make moral decisions based upon the fact that we are now new spiritually and we have a spiritual capacity which will enable us to live closer to the will of God than we previously did. So we've paused from certain particular areas of sin in our lives. We've gotten victory over those. And then he says in verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So for the rest of my life, the rest of the time that I have here on planet Earth, I should no longer live my life for the lusts of men. I should no longer live my life with the worldview and the lifestyle of the culture around me, but I should live it for the will of God. I should live the kind of a life that Jesus lived, seeking to do God's will, for the betterment of everyone around me and for the blessing of those around me. In our case, also for our own personal blessing. It is a better way to live and it is a more abundant and happy way to live. Verse 3, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to carry out the desires of the Gentiles. Now, we have a modern phrase which pretty well is summarizing verse 3, which is, been there, done that. For the time already passed, is sufficient. For the time you've already lived, that's enough time to do the things that, all the negative things that you did. You don't have to keep on doing it to find out it doesn't work. You don't have to keep on beating your head against a wall, so to speak, to find out that it hurts. And so time you've already lived here on earth is sufficient for you to carry out the desire of the Gentiles. Quit it. Change your mind. If you, you, you made a change of mind about who Jesus is, now change your mind about the choices that you make in carrying out the will of God in your lives. Now, here's some of the things that they did in the past, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. It sounds like a weekend on an American college campus. What are these particular words referring to? And this is a description of the pagan lifestyle, the culture around them at the time. And what had happened is that these Jewish people who had since become believers in Messiah Jesus, even though they were Jewish, had begun to blend in with the paganism around them. And the paganism around them of the first century world was characterized by this kind of lifestyle and behavior. Let's just look at it. He just uses six words to describe what was going on in the culture of that day. And it sounds eerily familiar with a lot of the culture of our day. First of all, was sensuality. That is also translated in older translations by the English word lasciviousness. It means excesses and all kinds of evil and a total lack of self-restraint, including all kinds of moral impurity. In other words, you name it, you did it. The most depraved immoral acts you can possibly come up with, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. Sensuality. Then lusts, that's cultivating, because of that kind of behavior, cultivating an ongoing desire for depraved activity. The third thing 
that he names here is drunkenness. Drunkenness means drunkenness. It's a Greek word, which means to bubble and overflow. It means to be completely saturated with alcohol. Today, we would use terms like addiction or alcoholism or drunk. We would also use other terms for addictive substances. It's the same kind of problem. It's using a chemical, a liquid or <laughs> solid or smoked or however else you're going to get it in, ingested into your system to alter your mind to give you a high, whatever it is. It's getting high and staying high. So that kind of stuff. Carousing. Carousing is partying in a way that exposes you to this kind of temptation. Attending a party, attending a revelry, attending an event that you know good and well is going to have available all kinds of stuff that is destructive to you and destructive to the people with whom you do it. And then drinking parties. That's again, is a repeat of that same particular addictive, getting high, getting blitzed lifestyle. I would even think in terms of binge drinking, which unfortunately takes the lives of college students in the United States every week, every year. And so um, that kind of stuff. And then abominable idolatries. They even plunge themselves into the worship of idols. And you have to understand in the pagan culture, the worship of idols often involved sexual immorality of all kinds. And so uh, it meant that they had really gone into the pagan lifestyle. They were indistinguishable from the culture around them. But now that they've become believers in Christ and they realize that that is not the abundant life, that's not the free life, that's not the will of God, they've backed away from it. And he said, when, when you do this, you're going to get a reaction which may surprise you. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. You would think that they might commend you and say, you know, Mammy, maybe I need to change my ways too, but that's not what happens. They malign you. If you don't go do what they do, they put you down. And the reason why they put you down and the reason why they malign you, which means to say false things about you, is because your non-participation convicts them. In our society today, we've, we've seen people even taken to court if their particular commitment to Christ has said that they can't endorse or provide a cake or flowers or a wedding venue for certain lifestyle choices today that are legal, but that's not enough. Just a person objecting and saying, I'm sorry, I can't make a cake for that event or I can't provide flowers for that event. Here's somebody down the street who can. That's not good enough. They're going to take that person to court and malign them because of their Christian beliefs, just because they believe them. It hasn't inconvenienced them. It doesn't mean that there's not another place that they can do what it is they need to do or obtain the service that they need to obtain. It's just that they don't want anybody even thinking that the lifestyle choice they've made is wrong. And so they malign you. And so we shouldn't be surprised at that in today's culture. Nothing has changed in the world around us. And it may indeed, for believers, even become worse or get more uncomfortable in the days ahead. But remember, this is just temporary. And then he goes on to give you and me a reason to hang in there. 
but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. These people who are maligning you, Peter said, in the not too far distant future, as you count things, will give an account to Jesus. You're going to answer to the judge. Now, the world is going along, whistling past the graveyard on this event. They don't want to talk about it. In fact, one of the reasons that Christianity is attacked so vociferously today is over this very idea that there is a judgment after this life, and people don't want to hear that. They know that's a judgment they cannot escape. They know that's a judgment in which there will be no negotiation. They know there's a, that's a judgment in which the truth will come out and there won't be any way to stop it. They know that they're coming to be judged by a person who has every right to judge every sin because he died on the cross and paid for all sin if men would but accept his forgiveness. And Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. And that verse points out a biblical doctrine and a particular New Testament doctrine that there's just two categories of people the living and the dead. Now, who are the living? The living are those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. The living are those who are convinced that it's true, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for their sins, and that he rose from the dead. They are convinced that that is historically true, and they have trusted him as their Savior, and they have asked him to enter their lives and to give them the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And they are the living and they will live forever. And then the other group is the dead. Now, what does that mean? It means dead spiritually. Death in the Bible is never cessation of being. It is separation from the blessings of God. That's what death is. And so Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. For those of us who are believers, the judgment seat of Christ is a place where he can command and reward that which is good in our lives and remove that which is detrimental. To finally remove all sin from our life and experience for the going forward of our existence into eternity. But for the dead, there is an accounting for and a punishment assigned for the fact that they did not receive the free gift of eternal life and never repented of their sins or turned their back on it. And it will be in proportion to the kind of wickedness they involve themselves in in this particular life. And eternity is real. It hasn't gone anywhere. The people who've died in the past are either with God in heaven or they are in hell. And there is yet to be a final rendering in both those cases. People who are saved are saved. People who are lost are lost. But make no mistake about it, we will give an account. And this life is a temporary gig. And so when we think about our life, we need to remember that. And we need to order our decisions accordingly. Verse 6, For the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. And what's that mean? It means that the gospel, for the purpose of giving us spiritual life, has been preached to those who were living at the time when the gospel was preached to them, but they're now dead. And the implication of this verse is as though they were judged in the flesh as men, that they were martyred. People heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, 
they began to live lives in accordance with the will of God. And because of it, they ended up being martyred. It says that they may live in the spirit, but nevertheless, they are spiritually alive. Their physical life ended in martyrdom. Now, that could be viewed as a complete and total tragedy. Why did they do that? Why would they embrace a Savior if it's going to cost them their lives? Well, he, re- he reminds us that they embraced a Savior to get their lives, not to lose it. Everybody's going to die. Everybody is going to die if Jesus tarries. And so you better make preparation for that by receiving the gospel and become alive in the Spirit. And so that's what he is referring to here. I want to quote my friend, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, in his commentary on this particular passage of Scripture. He said this, The death and resurrection of Jesus guarantees the final judgment for the unbeliever, but for the believer, it is an encouragement to live spiritually. In other words, remember every day that you live that this is temporary. This too will pass. These problems which seem to never end will end someday. This particular period of time on earth you will occupy. Others have done it before you. Others will do it after you. But it is temporary. It doesn't go on forever and ever. What does go on forever and ever is what's next, which is forever and ever. And if I have trusted Christ as my Savior, and I have turned to him for the strength to live the kind of life that is commanded in the New Testament and the kind of life that I now intuitively know is a blessing to myself and to others, then regardless of how men react to it, it's still going to be the best way to live. And as in the past, we may receive negative response to that, but that doesn't mean that it isn't worthwhile. And we also need to rest assured that those who have persecuted believers, in a sense, are still persecuting Jesus because it is Jesus who has changed them. And what they're reacting to is not you, my friend. What they're reacting to is the life of Jesus Christ that's coming out of you. They are seeing. And they are reacting negatively because they aren't yet ready to turn and to repent. But you need to love them pray for them, and we need to live consistent Christian lives before them. May God richly bless you.